I've been asked to sing a song, and I have a favorite I love to share. And so I'll sing, I Know Who Holds Tomorrow. Isn't it good to know that no matter what happens in our life, as we go through different, some of the struggles, different trials that Brother Brian mentioned, it's always for our good and for his glory. And that's what this song always reminds me of, I Know Who Holds Tomorrow. I don't know about tomorrow, I just live from day to day. I don't borrow from its sunshine, for its scars may turn to gray. I don't worry o'er the future, for I know what Jesus said and today I walk beside him for he knows what lies ahead many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand but I know who holds tomorrow and I know my hand every day is getting brighter as the golden stairs I climb every burden getting lighter every cloud is silver lined there the sun is always shining things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand but I know who holds tomorrow and I know who holds my hand I don't know about tomorrow it may But the one who feeds the sparrow is the one who stands by me. And the path that be my portion may be through the flame or flood, but his presence goes before me. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow, and I know who holds my hand. Yes, I know who holds my hand.
just want to make sure, is there a book report yet? No? I was looking on my schedule and it looks like there's no book review. Okay, all right. So be careful of the schedule. <clears throat> Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Psalms once again. And in the book of Psalms, I would like you to notice Psalm 45, because last night we started with the blessed man of Psalm 1, and today we'd like to continue on in the wonderful wedding psalm, a royal wedding psalm of Psalm 45. So as you look in Psalm 45, <clears throat> we have 17 verses. I'd like to read all 17 verses, but just know, as Brian has pointed out about point number one, we are only planning on going through verse 8. So Psalm 45, I'll read all 17 verses, but especially notice verses 1 through 8 as we see all about our heavenly bridegroom. Psalm 45, verse 1 in the New King James translation says, My heart is overflowing or indicting with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Verse 3, gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, and with your glory and your majesty. And in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Verse 8. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. King's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Now verse 10. Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. So the king will greatly desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Worship him. And the daughter of Tyre will be there with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. Verse 13. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing, they shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. Verse 16. Instead of your father shall be your sons whom you shall make princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. And would you just close that with me by saying, Amen. What a wonderful portion is this wedding and royal wedding psalm that's given to us in Psalm 45. But as we look at it, we would like to see it 
as really a presentation of our heavenly bridegroom. That's what we're going to be majoring on this morning and also this afternoon. And then tomorrow afternoon, with the Lord's help, we'll look at the second half of this Psalm 45, and we'll see more about the bride, and that's our part as the church belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have the bridegroom and the bride. Not long ago, I was asked to take a wedding ceremony, and it was a very large wedding with a, an important plan to have everything just right. And so rehearsal is the key to any wedding ceremony. So whenever I am taking a wedding and the responsibilities at the rehearsal, I come down pretty heavy. Now, I know it's hard for you to imagine that, huh? I'm so nice. <laughs> you know, I found out if you start heavy, you can always lighten up, but if you start light, you can't get heavy. And so I always kind of put fear into people that they don't know me. I say, now you have to pay attention at this wedding rehearsal. No talking, no laughing, no cutting up. We have a dinner planned, and the sooner we get done, the quicker we get to dinner. And they listen for some reason. And so we got the rehearsal. I always start halfway through the ceremony. We go through the rehearsal. We march them out. We march them in. We go through the whole thing again. We march them out, and then we're done. And it gets so technical and so mechanical, but that's just to make the most of the opportunity to present the gospel at the wedding. And so we had all that behind us. We had practice, where do I stand and everything. And so now the wedding is ready. And on that wedding day, they hide the minister and the best man as well as the bridegroom in the back chamber. Now, it used to be you had to identify what music was playing to know when to come out. Now they just send you a text. <laughs> Another great help for social media, right? And so I got the text, and it said, it's time. And I told the, the bridegroom-to-be and the best man, I said, it's time. Follow me. And I turned around, and I started to walk away, and the bridegroom said, Mr. Trogdon, is this another rehearsal? Or is this for real? <laughs> See, when we went back to hide in the room, there was nobody there. And I said, this is for real, follow me. And you know, when we're looking at a wedding, like in Psalm 45, you might just ask yourself, is this a rehearsal or is this for real? Because we're reading from the psalmist of really a beautiful wedding description and you have to ask yourself, is this something that completely applies to someone else, or is this real for us? And I want to tell you straight out that I believe this is a, a prophetic, a messianic psalm that's speaking of more than just the wedding for a king and his bride-to-be, but rather it's a view of the Lord Jesus Christ as our heavenly bridegroom. I've enjoyed reading The Treasury of David. I understand C.H. Uh, uh, Spurgeon said that, that when he wrote The Treasury of David, it almost killed him. It was such a, such a heavy responsibility. But I'll tell you, he left us great gems of observation looking into his notes, not only to the quaint sayings to the village preacher, but actually the exposition of wonderful psalms like Psalm 45. This is what he said about who this is written of, Spurgeon said, if you look at Psalm 45 and you only see Solomon being soon wedded to Pharaoh's daughter, he said, you're short-sighted. 
if you see Solomon and Christ, you're cross-eyed. <laughs> but if you see Christ and his church, then you're clearly in focus with 2020 vision. That's really what we want, isn't it? Because when we look into a, a psalm like this, we have to look back, uh, past the immediate application and look ahead just as, as the Lord Jesus told himself to the two on the road to Emmaus and to the disciples who were hiding in the upper room on the night of his resurrection that day, that he declared himself not only through the prophets and the law, but also through the book of Psalms. So this must have been one. In fact, I'll just point out to you, I believe without a doubt that it's a messianic psalm based on what the New Testament accredits it to be based on verse 6. Psalm 45 verse 6 says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now that's more than just an extravagant exaggeration. It's more than just a royal hyperbole. It is a prophetic mention in the book of Hebrews to say, the Father says to the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And so it's written as a messianic psalm, prophetically picturing the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we look in this wonderful psalm, make no mistake about it, we are looking at Christ and his wonderful relationship to the bride, his bride, the church. Many times, as our brother Brian has well mentioned, the opening statements of some of the epistles seem to be almost stamped out so we might miss some of the uniqueness of each greeting. It's true also with the inscriptions to the Psalms. And so if you don't mind, I'll take a moment just to point out the inscription. Now, I know that when you're going to talk about the inscription, for as long as I'm going to mention the inscription, it's kind of like... One preacher said, you keep your finger in your Bible just in case you get to the text. But we are going to get to the text, but we don't want to miss the inscription. You'll notice that the inscription, first of all, that's right at above the beginning of your psalm in your Bible, it is written to the chief musician. Who is the chief musician? Well, it's none other than the Lord Jesus himself. He's the one who's not ashamed to call us brethren, according to the uh, book of Hebrews chapter 2. But in the midst of the congregation, he leads the praise to God. Huh? Think of him as the chief musician. He's not only the theme of our song, he's the one that wrote our song. And he's the chief musician to whom this psalm is dedicated. Also, you'll see that it is set to the lilies. Now, this description of being set to the lilies is Shoshanim in some translations, as you have your inscription, but it's a very romantic kind of expression that really makes it suitable for a wedding psalm, to the lilies. Now, in the Song of Solomon, the lily of the valley, don't let me throw you off here, is a reference to the bride. In our hymn book, the lily of the valley is a reference to the bridegroom. He's the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. And so we, we see set to the lilies is more of a description of the setting of this psalm being a, a special occasion of a wedding. We think of the lilies in connection with Solomon, don't we? The Lord Jesus said, you know, Solomon in all his glory did not compare to the glory 
that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Truly, like the Lord Jesus said, there's one greater than Solomon here. And so we're thinking of the glory of the sun and in all of his splendor and beauty, he clothed the lilies with more glory that surpasses Solomon's, but when it comes to the Lord Jesus, he has more glory than all the lilies put together. He is indeed to our hearts the lily of the valley. And so we see this nice occasion set to the lilies are upon the Shoshanim. Also, we see in the inscription that is called a maskil or a contemplation. Now, that seems a bit complicated, doesn't it? But let me say it in pure, simple Southern terminology. You're going to have to think about it, all right? All right, it's a contemplation. It's something that needs to be considered, a consideration or a contemplation uh, in Hebrew, a maskil. You've got to think through this. And here's the most exciting along the way. It is one of the sons are a, a set for one of the sons of Korah, or of the sons of Korah, I should say, of the sons of Korah. You know, that takes us back, as we were been going back to Moses' life. You remember Dathan and Abiram, together with the sons of Korah, who rebelled against the Lord and against Moses, and the Lord dealt in a very dramatic fashion. They were rebels, weren't they? But yet, of the sons, or the descendants of Korah, from their rebellion, here they are, singing in the choir. It really is like they say, from the mire to the choir. How can it be that those from that background could have the privilege of honoring the Lord in song? Well, I believe with all my heart that the rebels make the best singers, don't you? <laughs> I don't mean rebels still at heart, but rebels who have come to the Savior. We've got a song to sing, don't we? And they sing it from their heart, and they make, make the best praise unto the Lord. Lastly, in this inscription, it's a song of love. A song of love with all of its breadth or width, to the very extent of its length, down to the very depths and up to the height when it comes to describing this love theme in this wonderful psalm, a wedding psalm of Psalm 45. How would you describe it that way with all these different dimensions of breadth and length and depth and height? Well, Robert Chapman hit it right, didn't he? He said, John 3.16 gives us all four of those measurements. What is the breadth or the width of the love of God? For God so loved the world. And the length of his love that he gave his only begotten son. Went to the fullest length, gave his very best. Down to the depths of his love that whosoever, that's you and me, believes in him but should not perish. Why? Because he lifts us up to the height, but have everlasting life. Measure the love of God. It's beyond our measurements. The inscription is followed. Let me see if I can get this right back on. The inscription is followed by the preparation, and that's where we get into verse 1. The preparation of the psalmist starts with meditation. Verse 1, my heart is inditing, overflowing. It actually has the idea of bubbling over with a good theme. Now, if it's good, a good matter, it has to do with God. Even the Lord Jesus speaking to the rich young ruler, when he addressed him and said, good master, 
he addressed the very use of the expression, why do you call me good? There's only one, and that's God. So if the psalmist, in his heart, meditating and overflowing, bubbling over with a good matter, he has to be speaking about God. And so he tells us about his composition. I recite my composition concerning the king. In other words, he's been putting this together, a composition. The, I recite or I am telling you about what I have made touching the king. Now, those who minister the word of God have the great privilege, don't we, of looking into the scripture and preparing a way to present it. It's the same way you ladies outdo us whenever you prepare a meal. You make the plan, you put it all together, and it comes out at the same time. That's the wonder of all wonders to most of us men. It's one thing to cook barbecue out in the parking lot, but it's another thing to prepare a spread and make a presentation. And so the psalmist, in a very careful form, he said, this is what I've been preparing. It's the preparation of my heart by meditating, and then by composition, I'm putting it all together, and it's going to fit perfectly. How is that possible? Well, it's the inspiration that is necessary because it's touching the king or concerning the king. Christ is the grand inspiration of the word of God and specifically for this psalm. You know, all the psalms were really songs sung in God's hymn book, as we often say. And while we may not put them to music, you understand that they are inspired, every word of God and every word from this psalm. It far exceeds what we enjoy in our singing today, though it's inspiring. You can't say they're inspired, but here, this is definitely inspired because it's all about the King, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Lastly, he says in verse 1, my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Now, this is that takes preparation, you understand. It takes meditation, it takes composition, it takes inspiration, but I am so glad that it also required dictation, that the Spirit of God led the psalmist to speak these words, and not just to speak them, but to write them down. And you and I get the benefit of it, don't we? Aren't you glad to have the Word of God? The Bible says, and the Apostle Paul writes it in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, that for whatever things that were written before were written for our learning that through the patience and the comfort of the scriptures we might have hope. And so we read a psalm like this and we realize this is God's inspired word. It was prepared, yes, by the psalmist, but it was dictated by the Spirit of God who has written these things and put them into writing form so that you and I can read our Bibles today and rejoice in its message. Aren't you glad for that? I'm glad that it has been written down for us. So we see the preparation and we see the inscription, but we also see now the description, the part that we've been waiting for as we open this psalm, a description of the bridegroom. Now it might sound strange to you to say, we'll talk about the bridegroom first because most wedding conversations are all about the bride. Don't take it personal. You come last. And we're glad to give him first place, aren't we? In all things that he might have preeminence. And so we start with a description 
of our beloved bridegroom. You'll notice first the psalmist extols his worth. In verse 2 he says, you are fairer than the sons of men. His worth is far beyond any that we know just in this human experience and history of earth. When they were searching for a king, they found a king, Saul. He was head and shoulders above the rest. But Saul could not compare to the Lord Jesus Christ as the king. David, the one of God's own choice, well, he wasn't tall, but he was handsome and ruddy. <laughs> and they even said of David, you are, with, you are worth 10,000 of us. But when you consider the person of Christ, he exceeded David. He was great David's greater son. And around the throne in Revelation, what did they say of him? Well, around him are 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Why? Because he is worthy to receive all the blessings in a sevenfold way. You can compare Christ through the scriptures, and the writer of Hebrews does it very well, compared to angels, compared to prophets, compared to priests, compared to kings. Well, as one of him writers says, in fairest Lord Jesus, Jesus shines brighter. <laughs> Jesus shines purer than all the angels heaven can boast. He far exceeds them all, doesn't he? And so we look at his worth. You are fairer than the sons of men. Name any of them. Name them all. And Jesus shines brighter and Jesus shines purer. We not only see his worth in verse 2, but we learn something about his words. Would you look at that next line in verse 2? Grace is poured upon your lips. Now think about it for a moment. Grace is poured upon your lips. You know, there was no one that spoke words like the Lord Jesus. In fact, in the little synagogue in Nazareth, when he was given the scroll and he stood up to read, and he read from the prophet Isaiah, and he made this, this revelation to them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears or in your hearing. And it says, and all the eyes of those in the synagogue were upon him. And they wondered, you remember the statement? At the gracious words that proceeded from his mouth. The words that fell from his lips. They wondered at how, what grace was in those words. And here I read, grace is poured upon your lips. But there we quoted, grace is proceeding from your lips. Now, the reason they are from his lips is because they were poured into his lips. He's the very living word of God. He lives out what is said in our Bible. Not only that, but later in that very same setting of the synagogue at Nazareth from Luke chapter 4, it says that they were astonished at his teaching because he taught and spoke as one having authority. His words not only were full of grace, but they were full of power. When the officers sent from the chief priest returned from going to seize him and returned empty-handed, and they were questioned, why didn't you bring him? What was their answer? They said, no one ever spoke like this man spoke. 
and they came back without him. His words were astonishing to them. And finally they exclaimed, where did this man get these things? And with what wisdom does he speak, or what wisdom is this? It really is amazing. He, he spoke as no one else had ever spoken. In fact, there was a nice expression written about him, anonymously recorded for us, but I'm sure you've heard it before. Let me read it. Like man, he walked. Like God, he talked. His words were oracles, and his works were miracles. Of man, the finest specimen. Of God, the true expression. Full-orbed humanity, crowned with deity. No taint of iniquity, and no trace of infirmity. Ecce homo, behold the man. Ecce Deus, behold thy God. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. This is our God. We have waited for him. And when he came on the scene, his words declared, this is none other than the Son of God. His words were full of grace and truth, far surpassing that of even Moses. And so here we see the Lord Jesus in his worth. And in his words, verse 2 follows properly with his worship. In verse 2, it says, therefore, God has blessed you forever. Now, I want you to just think about what worship is and how long it will go on. You know, there are some things we enjoy right here and right now, but worship is something that will continue on, and it actually becomes our eternal occupation, occupied with him. God has already determined that in all the creation, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And even in this psalm, he gives us some points that are forever points. Right here in verse 2, we just read, God has blessed you forever. And in verse 6, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then in verse 17, the first part of the verse, he says, I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, he goes on to say, lastly, the people shall praise you forever and ever. Warren Wearsby says that Jesus is the center of heaven's glory and he is the focus of heaven's worship. So it's, if it's going to be our eternal occupation to worship the Lord, isn't it ex exciting that he gives us that privilege to start now and to realize we're going to go on in our worship of him forever, eternally, and for all eternity. Nancy and I were up in the beautiful area of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, uh, about a year or so ago. And while we were there, we made some plans to go and see a, a play. And it was a play about Jonah at the Millennium Theater. Millennium sounds like it might last a long time, doesn't it? Well, the Millennium Theater, they have different shows there. But our show didn't start till 2.30, and it was only about 1 o'clock. And so we were trying to figure out, what can we do with this time? And Nancy said, I know what we can do. There's a factory outlet mall. And so we thought, yes, there, there's a factory outlet mall. It won't take long to finish this uh, suggestion. So uh, she found the factory outlet for, for Linux. That's China and Crystal. 
And so she was looking for a sale and I was looking for a soul. And so we went into the Linux factory outlet store. And when we walked in, she was looking for a particular pattern. And I saw a pattern on display at the beginning, right when you go in the store on a nice round table display. And the sign on the placard said, Eternity. I thought, you know, I can do something with that. There was nobody around, no worker, nothing. I looked in the back and there was a lady with a nice uniform, black and white. And so I made my way back there. And I was going to ask her about that display, Eternity. But when I got back to the back, there was another display, and I look at the placard, and it said, Eternal. And then I got a little confused. Which one was it? And I said, you have a display in the front, Eternity, and one here in the back, Eternal. And she said, that's right. And I said, what's the difference between Eternity and Eternal? I thought that was pretty good common ground, didn't you? And uh, she said, about $69. <laughs> and you know... <laughs> I didn't quite know what to say then. <laughs> Many times we get eternity and eternal kind of confused. We're talking of forever and forever, or forever and ever, and all these things that for eternity will be extolling his virtues and worshiping his person. But the difference between eternity and eternal is simple. Eternity has to do with the quantity of time, forever, Eternal has to do with the quality, doesn't it, of the depth, of the meaning of it. And so we're going to be worshiping for all eternity the eternal Son of God who is worthy in every way by the things that were spoken and His worship that rightly calls us to fall down at His feet and worship the Savior of sinners and adore Him. If you were ever going to say amen, that would have been the perfect time. It's true, isn't it? This is not just a rehearsal. This is for real, and it's really going to take place. Look in the meantime in Psalm 45, verse, four, uh, verse 3, if you will, because here we see his warfare. Now, I know it might seem strange, but this is almost like a military wedding for the royal king who is attired with a sword, and it represents the warfare, uh, the dominion, the character of the Lord Jesus Christ and his almighty power. Look, if you will, first of all, in his warfare, and we see in verse 3, a sword. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one. Now, of course, we know that the sword, to our hearts, represents the word of God. It's the sword of the Spirit. It's a two-edged sword. The writer of Hebrews well says that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. It is able to divide between soul and spirit, bone and marrow, and as a judge or a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The sword, well, it has two edges. And here we see in verse 3, Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and majesty. Would you think about it that way? The two-edged sword, glory and majesty. This is the sword of the Lord. And this sword, it pierces the heart. That's exactly how Simon Peter used it. Not on the night that the Lord was betrayed. That was the wrong sword. <laughs> that was the sword of the flesh. But there were two swords that were produced that night among the disciples, 
And on the day of Pentecost, Peter picked up the right sword, the sword of the Spirit. And three times he quotes from the scriptures until finally the people on the day of Pentecost, it says, they were pricked or pierced to their heart. And that's what God does with the word of God. He girds his sword upon his thigh, and it has two edges, glory and majesty. God uses his word to do his work. Not only do we see his sword, but we also see, well, I'm going to say his chariot in verse 4. And in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. Almost like the procession of victory as the Lord comes in from the battle to acclaim all of the praise that's due unto him in his warfare, he rides the chariot that is royal in splendor with three touching points, truth, humility, and righteousness. And then we see his might. In verse 4, at the end of the verse, he says, and your right hand shall teach you awesome things. His right hand representing his mighty power, even as it's mentioned in verse 3, O mighty one. And then in verse 5, his dominion. Did you notice verse 5 in his dominion? It says that his arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. Right now, the Lord Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father, the right hand of power. He's waiting for something. He's waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool when he takes an eternal rest with all those who know him. But as we look at his dominion, how does he accomplish it? Where his arrows are sharp, where? In the heart of the king's enemies. You know, he doesn't aim for the head. Every evangelist would do well to learn this, wouldn't they? I remember talking with Dr. John Lennox at our Rise Up conference that David mentioned to you coming up as the believer's Bible conference. At one of our conferences, Dr. Lennox was there, and you know, he's, he's handled himself well as presenting the truth of the gospel from the Word of God, even with those who are acclaimed to be atheists, like Richard Dawkins and others. He told us, sitting around the table at lunch, he says, whenever I go into a debate, I prayerfully always remind myself, don't aim for the head, but go for the heart. Hmm? Now, that's a good, good piece of counsel, isn't it? Don't go for the head. You could win the argument and lose the soul. But if you go for the heart, that's the way the Lord Jesus, well, that's the way he won us. His arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. Well, who would ever this represent? Well, take a moment and hold your place in Psalm 45. We'll be right back, but go over to the book of Romans chapter 5. And in Romans chapter 5, I think this reminder bears mentioning, certainly bears repeating, because in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6, we see ourselves portrayed in three different ways, and all three ways are not good. But he meets us at our point of need in every three instances. Romans 5, 6 says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. So when we were weak and helpless, he becomes our helper. In verse 8, 
of Romans 5, he says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So while we were completely covered, replete with the disease of sin, he becomes our healer. And then in verse 10, and here's the one, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. His arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. He won us, didn't he? And right into our hearts, while we were still enemies, we've been reconciled through his death. When we were without strength and helpless, he became our helper. When we were completely plagued with sin, he became our healer. And when we were enemies, he became our friend. You see, in this day and time, as you go back to Psalm 45, he's not waging war with us, even though he'll have the dominion and power. Now he's waging peace through the blood of his cross. Aren't you glad for that? He's won my heart from me. He's won our hearts from us. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to be over all in victory. Lastly, you see his throne placed before us in verse 6 and 7, and here's what he says. Verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's the ultimate victory. We know that he is already seated on the throne, and one day we'll be gathered around that throne with him from every tribe and every nation and every tongue and every family. And we will be giving his praise. He has a forever throne. Also, we see in verse 6, he has a scepter of righteousness that is the scepter of his kingdom. A righteous scepter. We've never seen a righteous reign on this earth, have we? Many have claimed it, but none have fulfilled it. It's been on every campaign platform in the political history of our little country, but none have ever carried it through. But there's going to be a king reigning in righteousness, and it's our heavenly bridegroom, the Lord Jesus. Verse 7 explains that he loves righteousness and hates wickedness. Now, that's the establishment of his government. And then we also read in verse 7, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And we see that he has the exaltation of gladness and the exaltation of glory above everyone else. C.H. Spurgeon beautifully alliterated verses 6 and 7 this way, A forever throne, that's his eternity. A righteous scepter, he reigns in equity. He loves righteousness and hates wickedness. It's the establishment of his kingdom. He is anointed with gladness, the exaltation of his person, and he is, is exalted above all his companions, the exaltation of his kingdom and of his name. Well, we were ready to start the wedding ceremony, and my bridegroom standing there with the best man, and we received the texts, and it says it's time, and I told them, it's time, follow me. And the young man said, Mr. Trogdon, is this a rehearsal, or is this the real thing? 
We've been looking in Psalm 45. I want to tell you, this is not a rehearsal. This is the real thing. And our Savior, our heavenly bridegroom, he's already won our hearts from us. We're only waiting for our bridegroom to come and to call us out of this world, and then we'll see him. Now, there's more to describe about the bridegroom. We'll hold that just for a little bit later after our nice lunch. I've been given the privilege to give thanks for the barbecue. And uh, this is great, a, a barbecue in California. I, I can hardly wait. And so we're going to pray and be dismissed. Unless there are any other announcements, we're all set, okay? Let's bow and thank the Lord for what we've received from his word this morning and also give him thanks for what we'll receive together. Our Father, how thankful we are that you are feeding us with your living manna from your word. Evermore, Lord, give us this bread as we've enjoyed Brian's ministry from 2 Timothy, reminding our hearts of the preparation of our lives, and as we've been also pondering the blessedness of our Lord Jesus Christ and the wedding that's yet to come. We thank you, Father, for both of these things and of our fellowship and the songs we've been singing. And we pray now that as we enjoy a lunchtime together, that you will bless the food and all those who have had a part in its provision as well as its preparation. And we thank you especially for the fellowship that we'll enjoy around the table. Help us to honor you in all things, for we give you thanks in the name that is above every name, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.